It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. Today's episode is another one personal to me because I have practiced law before this particular guest, and it's an honor to have his honor, Judge James Bodiford. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. Thank you very much. Judge Bodiford has been a judge for 35 years in Cobb County, Georgia, which is um, really part of metropolitan Atlanta for those of our listeners outside of Georgia. And he has handled so many different cases and in particular has become a go-to in the state for a judge who knows how to handle very high-profile cases, cases that are in the national media, and the local media of Georgia, and the special issues that come about with a high-profile case because you need a fair and impartial jury. And so the courts get involved, and and a judge in particular is the caretaker that that jury is fair and impartial. And so the question always becomes, how is the media affecting a trial for a defendant, and what is the judge's role in trying to assure that that trial is fair? And Judge Botterford, you have had more than one um, large case where you have been put in that position. Can you kind of start with telling our listeners, you know, how do you deal with the fact that the cameras are wanting to get in the courtroom, that the case is going to be on the news? Well, you you typically know that before your first hearing. Uh, It might be a case that uh, has consumed the first 10 minutes of every newscast for uh, weeks or months. And when it comes into the courtroom, you know that uh, it's going to be sort of the Super Bowl of cases. And you're going to have not, not just the regular concerns and issues, but you're you're going to have the additional challenge of dealing with um, the media and perhaps many, many people that want to come in and just see in person. So uh, each one, I don't know that you ever become an expert, even if you've done numerous ones, but they are a challenge but, and they can be handled just by treating everybody with courtesy, dignity, respect and, and setting the rules out beforehand. There will be, during those cases, there are going to be additional issues that come up. But as long as you know they're coming and you're, you're ready to deal with them, uh, then if possible, you try to treat it as a normal case. I know that's silly because I've just talked about how abnormal it is. Yeah. Did, did your decisions about how to handle them and your feelings toward them change? Because I think in the earlier years, I think Fred Tokars, who was a lawyer in Georgia who was accused of uh, murder, I believe, um, and that was one of the early big cases that kind of made 
at least the Georgia bar look to you as, you know, someone who's familiar with this national onslaught of attention, the court TV dynamic where um, court TV is no longer the here, although I, I will say they are getting ready to ramp up again and go back on where it's, you know, wall to wall coverage of a trial and the whole thing being taped. Um, how does it change from handling that to later on? You were the judge in the Brian Nichols murder case that the entire country literally was watching that day at the courthouse in Fulton County when he shot and killed a judge, court reporter and others at that courthouse and terrorized Atlanta um, for all the time he was until he was apprehended with various reports of sightings and and other instances of holding someone hostage. And you were the judge in that case, which was a huge responsibility of having a fair and impartial jury, jury when I know everyone I knew, at least certainly in Atlanta, was watching it on TV in live real time. The... Um from the uh, transgression from the Fred Tokars case where literally we, uh, the lawyers were arguing whether there were going to be cameras in the courtroom to 10 years later with the Brian Nichols case, the, the, uh, the, uh, what is now known as the courthouse killer case, there were light years. We no longer were arguing about whether there were cameras in the courtroom. We were only arguing or the lawyers were only arguing about issues uh, such as who would be the pool camera and where would they be? I mean, say pool camera, that's just having one camera in the courtroom and then all the reporters, because every station wants to have their own um, people there, but so that the courtroom's not anything but just one camera in the physical room of the build of of your courtroom that's right so we we went from uh, where where the speaker of the Georgia House had said back in 1997 when we did the Fred Tokars case who the jury found uh, had his wife murdered in front of his two children four and six years old uh, the speaker of the house said when I made a decision to allow the camera, uh, to allow the media to actually cover it with a camera, he said, I don't know how any judge in Georgia could do that. To, <laughs> to 11 years later, uh, with the, the Brian Nichols case, there was, there was no argument about whether the press would be an important part of that, that case. It was just the management, um, uh, the management. And in fact, in that particular case, they literally... Uh, and I, I should I should thank Fulton County and the city of Atlanta. They literally had uh, an entire courtroom that was just a media, just for the media, because there were probably twenty to thirty media outlets covering it, and they were there full time. And they actually literally had their own courtroom where nobody else could enter. And I say their own courtroom. That was their office space. And that story that you just recounted with regard to the legislature, you know, condemning you, in essence, for allowing a camera in. And now where we are with media today, you know, that that, that was a very visionary, in some ways, decision that you made in, in trying to, in saying that it was okay to have the camera there. Can you kind of give our listeners some insight about what you were seeing back there, um, where you're Bengali and saw all the directions we were going, you know, in the future with this? Or what was in your mind then when you said, yes, they can be here? Well, 
Uh, I wish I could say I was a visionary, uh, but <laughs> I think far from it. I, you know, the 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 media has a right to be in uh, a public courtroom, and they have to they have a right to report it, uh, and they can basically go outside and report. They can report it, and they're not subject to censorship. They're not subject to uh, somebody from the court calling them, say, the judge, and said, no, you've got that wrong. That's not what the judge said. Uh, so I wanted, uh, because of the intense public interest in this trial, I wanted people to be able to see it minute to minute. And Court TV actually helped in that. They covered it gavel to gavel. And so anybody that was interested could watch it themselves. They also, uh, although Court TV, the national outlet, and some other local and national outlets would get into little feuds among themselves sometimes about maybe how it was being covered, I think they say, for instance, our local news channels probably tens of thousands of dollars by basically coming in and handling the cost. It also, I think, I think this cemented my belief from that day on that the public, uh, it gave the public, th thankfully, it gave the public a, a huge confidence in what you and I do every, every day. And we know that when we go in, we feel like justice is being done. We work very hard to have that being done. And I think sometimes the perception by the public is otherwise. So at least in that trial, they watched it being done. And I would get letters from all over the nation just praising me for doing things that every judge in America does. And that's the good side of it. I think just a, a personal experience I had in a trial that was televised was with my client. And it, it was one where it wasn't live, but court TV came in and uh, we were trying a case and she was charged. And one of the issues became when it showed later on court TV because they run it and people will call in or you could vote online as to what you thought um, as the case progressed. And fortunately, she wasn't seeing any of that during the trial because I can't imagine, you know, for a defendant or anybody who's a party to it, whichever side, if you're the victim side or the defendant side, to see in real time people make gut decisions, voting like you do for American Idol, um, which is what they were doing for a while. Maybe when they return, that won't happen. Um, but she was just devastated that there were people thinking she was guilty later watching it, even though she was at home and had been acquitted and was, you know, with her family. So that's a, that is another side of all this. Um, not to say that it changes the, the idea of the courts um, and having an open and public place, a forum for people to really see what's happening. But there are those little things that happen down the way because of media coverage. Um, now, the other part of all that is besides the camera in the courtroom, the commentary that goes with it, and especially you've had some very long trials. I mean, none of these cases that are that large, you know, are done in, in three to five days, which is usually the average, you know, for a case going to a jury trial. How do you handle or how do you suggest even other judges with your experience handle maintaining the integrity of your decision-making with all this noise around you commenting? 
the one thing that I that I learned from the O.J. Simpson case, at least at least what we heard, I'm not sure that it was true, was the judge allegedly was meeting with different different people that would come into the courtroom that might be interested, whether they were media or otherwise. And basically, I just tried to build a wall between myself and all the people that were interested in the case. Obviously, you said hello to them and good morning or whatever, but you're not sitting down and chatting with them back in the office. You're not having selfies made. But I I, I was not worried about myself or my staff. I was worried about the jury. And from the beginning of trying jury trials as a judge, when I tried my first felony jury trial in 1986, which was a murder trial, to now, the difference in charging the jury is, as far as doing improper things like looking at the news, it's maybe once a day back in 1986, you might say, hey, don't look at the daily newspaper tomorrow morning, to saying it three or four times a day. This is the integrity of this trial depends on you not getting any uh, any news or noise from any any place else other than whether it's correct or not from the courtroom. So it becomes a real challenge uh, and you have to trust the the jurors. And I think I, I can proudly say for the most part that if they're much like judges and, and lawyers. If you give them the rules, they will follow them. Now, I've had a murder case that was reversed because thankfully uh, that I reversed it myself. I granted a new trial because I found that uh, several of the jurors had done something improper. Thankfully, we found it. And that's a big thing because, you know, especially now, you know, the t- you have the TV component. And again, as we were talking about now, the social media component, that if you look at Twitter or Facebook or even Instagram, actually, people have man- even maneuvered a more political or news oriented opinion forum um, to express things in real time about what they think should happen with the case and how dangerous that is for a jury who's actually hearing what's admissible. You know, so many things make the news and then it turns out that's not even part of the trial. Um, So how would you suggest or what do you think, are there any extra measures with regard to social media? I know I think some judges are taking the phones away in the courthouse. Um, What other things besides the instructions that you give or have you changed your instructions over time? Well, uh, again, going back... Going back to like the with the Fred Tokars case because that was a it was a big one for the community it was a big one for me uh, um, where his his wife was basically he had or at least the jury found he had orchestrated a uh, contract killing on his wife again in front of the four and six year old uh, right there in the exact proximity we actually sequestered the jury. And they were sequestered for 44 days and nights. Wow. And after I did that, I said, I have, I, I don't ever want to do that again, although our law calls for it. And we found, we found now alternatives. There's been a big shift from, um, because I've been involved in some things that I think 
years ago would have been sequestered. You know, and a jury would have been brought someplace else. But that that rarely happens now. And I hope that I'm never involved in a case again where it happens, although my jury, I think, behaved perhaps better than I would. I would have at least been complaining more than they complained. <laughs> uh, can you imagine that? 44, 44 days and nights uh, from their family. I mean, they could see their family for an hour or two on a Sunday. Uh, otherwise, we just worked. We worked six, six days a week. Uh, today, we have what we call typically daytime sequestration, what you were talking about, and that is the social media is taken away. There's no TVs there. They may have to park in a different uh, different place and bust in. But after they go home at night, 6.30 at night, of course, if they wanted to violate uh, the rules that they could, uh, again, we we have to trust our process and and I other, I think the other thing is the power of the court. You know, you as a judge, I mean, it, it, there is a reason besides just the the office itself, but the fact that you do sit higher, usually over the courtroom. It, it, there's there are these cues that say, "Don't mess with me. This is serious. This is the law." in a way that affects jurors from realizing, you know, I may break a rule here and there at work. I may sneak my cell phone into the classroom when I'm not supposed to have it on. Um, But that there's unique circumstances there with the seriousness of the issue and that you do have the power at that moment, if you've caught someone violating that rule, to punish them in a multitude of ways. Um. So I would assume that's part of your power when you're sequestering, when you're not sequestering now, that you're really emphatic with them that um, they do have to hold you in high regard. And with it, not fear in a wrong way, but a little bit of fear to say, you know, I can't I can't mess this up. That and also I, I try to use I try to use the carrot approach. Uh, which I believe in, and that is, uh, for instance, if you have 12 jurors and maybe in a big case that might go on for weeks or months, you you probably have four alternates. And you say, of all the people that were were interviewed, all the people that went through the voir dire process, uh, you were the one selected by both sides. You the both sides have trusted you uh, to be a good juror, so you have been selected now. We might make a little joke about, I know that you probably weren't excited about that in the beginning, but, uh, uh, you know, you're here now and you've taken the responsibility. Um, I'm, I'm just so proud of our jury system. I, I think it really works. Um, I think it works. Um, and so I've, I've been in the last couple of years, I've actually led a team to the Republic of Georgia, nine time zones away from here in Atlanta and uh, helping them with their jury system because it's it's relatively new there. And I know that they probably think I'm, when I get all giddy and excited about our jury system, they're probably thinking, this guy's a nut. But, <laughs> but um, I, I think then when we go back and we see some of the judges that have done some jury trials, they're, they're excited too. They said, I see what you mean, Judge Jim. The, the- because it really is, and, and, I, and I say this having, when I graduated law school, um, the first jury trial I ever saw 
was one where I was a juror and became the foreman of a cocaine trafficking case in Fulton County in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And I remember I got in the back and everybody said, wait, you're the lawyer. You should tell us what to do. And I said, I've never seen a trial before. I just got out of school. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, how much the power of what the judge says matters. And then through trials, the other maybe corrective thing is if the individual makes a mistake, um, but tells a fellow juror, sometimes a fellow juror is the one who gets it before the court to say they violated a rule, that, that there, there is a community that gets created amongst the jurors so that if you have – because you do get some folks who may go off in a different direction, right or wrong, but, it, you know, against the majority um, and the maneuvering that happens there among people – and the need to know that the judge actually had already told you you could or couldn't do something. I, I think jurors are um, are great in uh, in helping other jurors understand that uh, maybe uh, maybe one juror is saying something they possibly shouldn't. And uh, I, I know I've been told that before in my one bad experience. Uh, that actually turned out to be a good experience because, again, we found uh, the person was convicted of voluntary manslaughter, and we found um, uh, shortly thereafter, after the verdict had been entered, that there had been some improper viewing uh, on the Internet. Uh, and we found that out by by some other jurors. Uh, we found that out by saying, you know, we're— it's been on our mind. We didn't think it was a big thing at the beginning, but now we do. But often in the jury room, one juror, I, and I, in fact, I encourage them to do so. I said, if somebody says something about what what did that what did that witness say about the red truck, and I said, remember, you can't talk about that until until you go back and deliberate, and then you can spend two hours on that if you can. And I said. It, first of all, you shouldn't be doing that. And second of all, if you hear it, if you're the second juror, you say, we can't do it now, remember. Um, so um, the, the, it's, it's got to be, the, there's got to be self-discipline by the jury because if somebody, I guess, went out and did something improper, one of the jurors at night went on social media, they spent six hours reviewing every single night what somebody was saying about the case, and then they kept their mouth shut, and they came in. We perhaps would would never know, right? Uh, and that would be that would be extremely bad. It's not. We're never going to have a perfect situation, and there are going to be some people like like that. And hopefully, we'll find those out. So the other part of when you have a high profile case is it may be extremely high profile in the location where the crime occurred, which is where you try the case. And a decision or a lawyer would ask the court to move that trial. Can you walk us through that process? And again, the pros and cons of, you know, going somewhere else to try a case, which creates a lot of difficulties and a lot of expense. It, it's the change of venue. And I have had um, three in my career, which... Uh, probably some other judges would say, well, he grants them too quickly if he's had three because I, I would think perhaps many judges have never had any 
One, one was the case that we've been talking about was the lawyer Fred Tokars, and everybody agreed. Uh, we moved that up to a very rural area. Uh, two was the antifreeze, what is called the antifreeze trial, and the lady was convicted of both killing her police officer husband in my jurisdiction and then later was convicted of killing her boyfriend by the same uh, method, by uh, uh, giving both of those at different times antifreeze. I, uh, I, even though the defense wanted me to move it, I thought I knew better and said no. After three days of voir dire, I, I knew that, and I said to the defense lawyer, you were right and I was wrong. We're moving this case. You just couldn't get jurors who could be objective. No, okay. and no, and they were, um, and uh, it was, it became quite clear even to somebody as dense as I was that we needed to move it. And once we did move it, we moved it to central Georgia and uh, it was, it was not, it was actually pretty easy to get a jury. I think it only took us four days, even with the, with all the surrounding publicity, even nationwide publicity, uh, um, in the in the courthouse killer case, known as the courthouse killer case, I would have moved that. And I, I had told the uh, lawyers many times I would have moved it, but I had no authority to move it because the defense did not want it moved. They did not want it taken from Fulton County, and. Um, the, the uh, at that time it, there was no security concerns, uh, so the only way that I could have done it on my own was if I'd found there were security concerns. So we actually had it in Fulton, which made it made it much harder to get a jury. But that's that was the law. We accepted it, and we were able to get a jury, and we. The jury was able to return two different verdicts, one on guilt and innocence, and then later on on whether Mr. Nichols received uh, life without parole or death. When you are moving, like when you did move that trial, though, there's also, a, I mean, a budgetary issue of all the witnesses are going somewhere else. I, I, I'm assuming you go all the way down there as opposed to taking those people up back to Cobb County, for instance, where, where you were in Fulton. Um, whatever county you're coming from, um, how is that dealt with by the well, courts? Well, it's uh, with the with the, with my circuit, uh, Cobb County. Thankfully, um, we, you know, it's a it's a regular. I mean, it's somewhat affluent, uh, and of course, nobody likes to spend money moving a case, but it, that's the way it is. Uh, there was one case that I was asked to preside over, and that was the crematorium case where three hundred dead bodies were stacked in the back of the crematorium and they were not uh, they were not cremated I had decided to move that case and there was no question that it needed to be moved and they had a lone commissioner there and she uh, the prosecution was urging me to bring the jury from a different jurisdiction back up to to this small county and she literally uh, testified and I believe her that if I had done it uh, the other way, and that is move the entire trial, say, 150 miles away, she would have to, uh, uh, there would be a special tax on all the citizens of that county. And I can, I'll, whatever the tax was called, I was not familiar with it because I'm not a tax lawyer. But I, I remember turning around and asking her, and finally I just said, does that mean you're going to be assessing a tax on every 
everybody, I guess, every property owner in the county. And she said, that's exactly what wow. I'm going to do. Uh, and I thought to myself, I'm going to need a lot of security. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's yeah. not so many happy people. But, but again, it goes back to how important the judicial system is. You know, it, it may have inconveniences. It has costs. It has. But when it's particularly liberty at stake, you know, what is the cost of liberty? Um, what is the cost of justice? And, you know, to be a free society, is that where we put our resources and try to stay focused on that? Um, but And that's not always easy, as you have had to deal with with each of these large cases and then also the small ones that you have. I mean, not every case that you have, although you are a go-to and a, appreciated for the way you handle a courtroom, and that's kind of where I'm going next is – controlling a courtroom. You know, a lot of judges have a lot of different personalities and how they, the formality of the courtroom versus not. I know having been to your courtroom, I feel like it's a formal courtroom. Um, I know personally I have learned, I think when I was younger, I didn't appreciate it. And then the longer I started to practice, I realized there's a reliability and a better shot at justice in a courtroom that follows the rules because a lot of thought went into the rules. Um, and then the other part of it is, and I'm going to tell you a story I haven't told you. I'm doing this on the podcast. So when I had my big case with you and I filed this, I, I filed the speedy trial demand and that requires a case to be heard for a certain period of time. And um, the state did not find that. And you found it. And it was the Monday before Thanksgiving. And you made a phone call to the councils and said, I found this and you'll be on trial on that Monday. And I remember, OK, that I can handle because I realize there's responsibility with filing it. But I had never really been in front of you. And I was afraid um, because some judges have more of a presence. And this it was just more anecdotal. Um and then about two days into the trial, I realized, no, this is actually the perfect judge to hear this case. Not that I necessarily won, but that you follow, you follow the rules. And it's not a situation where, you know, we're casual here talking back and forth and collegial, but that it's a different relationship and that you do need to have some authority over the lawyers, not just the ju the jurors or the witnesses, because we can get a little out of control. Um, so having admitted my fear of you, um, is that, you know, how do you handle, what is your philosophy beyond what I was seeing in terms of controlling the courtroom and controlling lawyers? Because, you know, we, we like to talk, we like to dominate, we want to win. How do you handle that? Well, I th as far as I'm, as far as I view myself, I think I have two different personalities. One is in the courtroom, and one is you better be on time. You uh, you better treat the other person with courtesy, dignity, respect. Uh, you better be prepared. Uh, uh, and when now back in chambers, we're. We may come back there, and particularly with somebody that doesn't know me, if all the lawyers come back and talking, I've got my coat off asking about their children, asking about what they did on the weekend, and really, really wanting to know. And so I, I think particularly with younger lawyers, lawyers that have never appeared, I'm hoping they know somebody who says, well, he, 
he really does have a personality. He's not just that, <laughs> you know, that uh, tough as nails guy that you see in the courtroom. I, I like to say my biggest supporters are people that spend a week with me in a jury trial. Uh, because at the end, I'm hoping they will say whether they won or lost, whether their client won or lost, they would say, you know, I got a fair shake. And uh, yes, maybe the judge was a little hard on me, but he was a little hard on the other side, too. It was not he didn't have any favorites, uh, no matter how long you'd known him or whether you went to church with him or whatever in that courtroom. Uh, and I'm I, I sort of learned that in my I was in private practice and I was also a felony prosecutor. You know, I, I sort of learned that from the older judges. And, of course, now I would be <laughs> – the younger judges would go, can't believe he's still on the bench. I mean, how old is he? He's probably 60 now, isn't he? And uh, obviously I'm – BJ, you and I know that I'm older than that. But, um, you know, they were they were sort of tough as nails. And But you – they expected you to actually come into court on time, uh, you know, and and prepared. And then when you did, when you made a mistake, they actually expected you to apologize. And I still expect that today. Uh, I expect it today. And uh, not only from them, but I expect it from myself. And one last thing before we wrap up is any advice to people when they, just the general public, when they come to court? Because for many, it is, you know, I'm used to it. I know the formality and I may tell a client it's that formal, Um but I don't know if it always sinks in or if folks come without counsel. Any quick advice about how to conduct yourself so that you help the judge, you know, run the courtroom and help themselves in front of you? I think the best advice that I could give anybody is in superior court where I am, the, t- the top level trial court here in the state of Georgia, is you need a lawyer. Now, you have an absolute constitutional right to be pro se or, or to, to be self-represented. But I just think it's, a, it's, it's not the best, I- best idea for many, many reasons. And I've seen so many people uh, try to represent themselves that are intelligent individuals but uh, really just fall right on their face. So I would say to get a lawyer, and hopefully the lawyer then has schooled the client about what to expect in the courtroom. And each judge is different. Some some judges are much more laid, laid back, and that works for them. Uh, and I, I don't want people to think, by the way, that I'm just like a Marine Corps drill instructor no. in any time, but... Uh, you know, we certainly start off the day like that. And, you know, the first person that comes in late, we let them know that they're late. Um, you know, we, we let them know, and that lets everybody else in the courtroom know, when I'm coming back in front of Judge Botterford, I don't want to be that person that just stepped in here 20 minutes late. Right, right. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And uh, I feel like we could go on and on and on. But as we end, we have been sipping a cup of tea, as it is the custom on Law Talk with BJ. And your tea that we have been enjoying is um, a tea with lemon myrtle in it. And the, there is a spiritual reason, and, and there's, there are great health reasons. It's very healthy. It's good in antioxidant. But it in some cultures, it is a herb of acceptance and forgiveness. And I just thought that was really perfect for um, your reputation as a judge, being on the bench of accepting people, accepting the public, um, when the ones make a mistake, 
that you are open to forgiveness with education, um, that part of being a jurist is a very difficult, you have to make some very serious decisions and it has to have, there's a wholeness that's needed to, to do them. And so I thought this was a perfect tea for you because I think that says a lot of what you've done in these last 35 years. And I look forward to here seeing what you do next because you never know when they're going to call you for a special case that needs your special touch. So well, thank you, Judge. Thank you. And I've enjoyed sipping the tea and uh, thank you for the kind remarks. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.